Today on the show, we're going to be talking with Pastor Jason Oaks about his new book, Sharing Jesus with the Cults. But uh, more specifically, we're going to hone in on one of the topics in his book. We're going to be talking about the 12 Tribes Movement. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. All right, guys, welcome back. Uh, again, this is Michael Bohm, Youth Apologetics Training. Uh, today on the show, we are going to have Pastor Jason Oaks. He released his new book. I've hinted at this and mentioned this in uh, several podcasts in the past. Uh, it's called Sharing Jesus with the Cults. And uh, I actually want to talk to Jason and do several different podcasts, at least one more covering some of the aspects of this book. There's, there, it has a lot to offer. And uh, by the way, guys, you can find this book on Amazon, uh, as well as some other places Jason lists towards the uh, end of this podcast. Uh, it's a great read. There is a lot that it has to offer. I think I already said that. I'm getting redundant here. Um, <laughs> but today we're going to be talking about this uh, 12 Tribes Movement uh, honestly, I, I believe a few of you have reached out to me and asked me to do a podcast on this movement. Uh, that's about all I've heard of these guys um, until I noticed that Jason has uh, a chapter in his book on them. Uh, again, this book is called Sharing Jesus with the Cults, and you're going to hear a little bit how this book is formatted. Uh, it's not like your typical uh, Dr. Walter Martin, uh, Kingdom of the Cults type book or or several of the other, there, there's a lot of really good books out there that just kind of give you um, a smattering of different cults and their belief systems. This one uh, actually goes into um, what are some common traits of cults, then it talks about several, uh, many different cults that are out there, uh, and then this half of the book is devoted to just how to uh, share Jesus with these movements. Now, the 12 tribes movement, um, in many respects, feels like a Christian uh, organization. Uh, and so we're going to see, uh, as we go, many of the things they believe are orthodox, uh, but there is uh, one thing in particular uh, that is troubling. Okay, it's taking uh, a good lesson that you'll find uh, Jesus mentioning multiple times throughout the New Testament and uh, twisting it and making it a prerequisite to salvation uh, or, or at least part of your salvation. Uh, and that is the major concern. Now, I know, well, I would imagine some people from this movement will end up hearing this podcast. Uh, one of the things about this movement is, for the most part, they avoid... Uh, technology. So <laughs> that does kind of make it, uh, I guess, less likely that one of you from the 12 tribe will be listening. But if you are, I want to s start off right away by saying we love you guys and uh, we just, we want to get to what the scripture says. Amen. We want to look at what the Bible says and do that. Okay. So uh, as we're going to be talking about today, selling everything we own and giving it to the 12 tribes movement or just or just distributing uh, it out to uh, other Christians. Is that something that is necessary for our uh, salvation? Is that something that God absolutely requires of us? I want to know. I want to get to the bottom of it because if that's what God really wants, um, I guess I need to start figuring this out. Uh, or is there more to the story? Is there more that Jesus was trying to teach us there? Okay, so anyway, we love you guys, and I hope that we can all come together and get to the bottom of this. Um, I apologize if anywhere in this podcast, Jason or I come off abrasive. You know, I, I guess that's, well, when you're podcasting, sometimes it sounds that way, and I apologize. But here you go. We're going to jump right in with Jason Oaks here. Hey, Jason, <laughs> welcome back 
to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Always a pleasure to be on, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yes, it is. We always have a good time. Uh, <laughs> funny, uh, friends, this is actually round two. Jason and I uh, recorded this podcast two days ago, and uh, I'm on a new laptop, and this new laptop uh, cost me a million dollars, and it's been nothing but a problem for me as far as podcasting is concerned. So uh, I hope that the audio quality turns out much better than uh, what we had on that uh, on the on the first recording, and so anyway, today we are going to be talking about Jason's new book. Um, he's really excited. I'm really excited. Uh, it is called "Sharing Jesus with the Cults." Uh, Jason, first of all, uh, tell me about this book. What was the goal of writing this book? And uh, also, I guess, how is it different from your typical? Kingdom of the Cults type book? Well, the book kind of came about because I was teaching as an adjunct professor for uh, Bethel Seminary San Diego, the class Understanding the Cults, uh, the very class that I took when I was in at Bethel from Eric Johnson at, at MRM. And uh, so I, in creating the content for the class, I started. Um, realizing that it would be great to have a textbook for the class. And so I started taking the content and putting it into written form. And that's kind of how the content for the book started. But really, it's just a culmination of my entire life. And since high school, really, uh, my best friend growing up was LDS. And so I, uh, in an attempt to reach him and you know, praise God. He, he came out of Mormonism and came into a relationship with Jesus. God got a hold of my heart, and it's just kind of uh, it's kind of gone on from there. But how it's different is my approach uh, in reading. And there's nothing wrong. Uh, Kingdom of the Cults is a great book. Uh, Mormonism 101, great book. All sorts of you know. Ron Rhodes has a lot of great books on how to witness. Um, a lot of great stuff out there and a lot of great tactics to learn from. Uh, mine, I just believe, is a little bit different. And I want to focus more on just getting as fast as I can to the gospel, to grace, to Jesus. And so I take the six most common conversations that I have over and over again. And really, the, the six opportunities that are going to come across your path more than any others. And I teach you how to leverage those opportunities and turn them from awkward moments into great opportunities to talk about Jesus. Um, so my, my tactic, I think, is just a bit different than some of the others that are out there. Yeah, yeah, amen to that. Um, so yeah, the book is, is divided up into three sections. And um, it's kind of fun. So section one, it just goes into um, basically what is a cult. And so you have um, sections on common traits of cults. Here's one. This is a big deal. Mind control and the cults. We'll have to come back to that here in a few minutes. Um, <laughs> and you end, the, you end this section with you might be in a cult if. <laughs> Sounds like a bad joke, right? Um, but uh, no. That would be section one, and then section two, you actually get into a bunch of different cults. Um, and so that's where it would be very similar to a lot of your different books that um, just give you a good rundown of what do they believe, who are they, what do they believe, um, what are kind of some of their uh, strange practices and uh, terms that they use that may or may not have anything related to the same terms we use. Uh, a lot of times cults will borrow Christian ease, if you will. They'll, they'll borrow Christian terms and then they'll use them, but they mean something totally different. So you kind of go into stuff like that. Um, and then the third section is exactly what you were describing. You've got six different tactics. And I think those are worth just a whole podcast in and of themselves. Um, there's there's just so much good there, and I think maybe we spend a whole podcast just going into each one of these tactics. Um, but today, um, I actually wanted to zero in on just one of these cults. It is a cult that, honestly, 
Uh, I have been asked by a few of my listeners to do a podcast on it before, um, but I was a little reluctant to do it. I just didn't have enough information. And then I noticed you had a, a, a short chapter in your book. Now, guys, we're going to spend a whole podcast on the subject. Um, by no means is the whole book about this movement. The movement's called the 12 Tribes Movement. And um, really, it's just a short little chapter in his overall book. But I wanted to kind of zero in on this movement because I think it's it's brings up some fascinating questions. Um, so, Jason, what is the 12 Tribes Movement? Well, the 12 tribes are not – they don't believe that they are literally the 12 tribes of Israel or that they come from Hebrew descent or anything of that nature. Rather, they believe that the body of Christ is divided up into 12 sections of the world and 12 strategic locations. And uh, guess what? They represent those all 12. And so um, – they have their centers strategically around the world. The closest one to us would be Miami, Florida. Uh, you can go on their website, uh, 12tribes.org, I believe it is, and you can pop up the nearest location to you. Uh, and the reason why that's important is because they believe that the call to Abraham and the rich young ruler and in the early chapters of the book of Acts that uh, you know go and leave and sell all you have – and go to the place where I'm going to show you uh, that that is just as relevant to us in the 21st century as it is uh, as it was back then uh, in the Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, they believe kind of it's all the same, really. Um, and that is that you are called if you are a believer in Jesus Christ to sell all you have give that money to the 12 tribes organization and go to one of these locations and live there. And you, any money that you earn, you would then give put back into the pool. Um, and so it's very similar in that respect to, say, the Amish or um, Hooterites, uh, for those who are familiar. Uh, we have a lot of them around here. And um, like the Jesus people movements in the 60s, things of that nature. Hmm. So this, this is kind of one of my pet peeves, but it just seems that a lot of these movements – um, will place something really off to the side. They'll take an idea from the Bible and they'll make it a central theme and that uh, almost will base your salvation or whether or not you're a true Christian on this one thing. And uh, this is this is typical of cults. Um, and uh, I mean that as lovingly as possible. <laughs> But in this case, basically they're saying that um, to be saved or real Christians would sell all that they have and would take that money, give it to the rest of the brethren for some type of a common good. Uh, and in this case, specifically the 12 tribes movement, because if you just give it to any old church, well, to them, that's probably not going to count, right? Right. And so you take everything, you sell it, you give it to the 12 tribes, <clears throat> and that's kind of your, your uh, proof truly that you're saved. This sounds to me like another gospel. You would expect, I mean, seriously, if this was that important to God, you would expect this to be talked about all throughout the New Testament and even hinted at or, or even explicitly talked about in the Old Testament. Is that the case? Absolutely not. Uh, in fact, I, you know, the verses that I mentioned, you know, in Genesis 12, the call of Abram, uh, you know, go leave your father and your mother, your people and go to the land that I'm going to show you. Uh, you know, they would pull that out of context to apply that this is God's instruction to you. Then they would go to the Gospels and they would go to the conversation Jesus had with the rich young ruler and where he tells them, sell everything you have and follow me. And they would, you know, rip that out of context and apply it to you. And then they would turn to the book of Acts. And in the early church, you know, in the days after Pentecost, uh, when you have those descriptions that every the believers had everything in common, and there were some that were selling their possessions and giving the money and laying it at apostles' feet. 
And all of those things, uh, they would just kind of combine into, uh, see, this is what the Bible teaches, and this is what you need to do. Hmm. Now, as far as Abraham is concerned, um, <clears throat> Abraham did uh, move to a strange land, but Abraham was fairly wealthy. <laughs> and he didn't sell everything he had and distribute it to other brethren. Correct? <laughs> Correct. Um, so that and, doesn't work. Um, yeah. and it's, go ahead. Sorry. No, yeah. I was going to say about Abram, if you read Acts chapter 7 and Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, um, you find out that Abram wasn't obedient, you know, initially. You, it, you don't get that from Genesis necessarily, but he elaborates and talks about, well, you see it in Genesis that he didn't leave his entire family. He took his nephew with him and uh, in, up until a certain point when that started causing problems. And then you also read about how he didn't really go initially uh, when God called him, that he waited until his father died. And so you, you have them using an example of somebody who was supposed to do something who wasn't obedient, you know, at least right off the bat. He did eventually go and do that. So uh, go ahead with the next one. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you mentioned um, last time we did this very same interview, you also talked about uh, in the book of Acts <clears throat> there in Jerusalem, uh, many of these believers didn't leave Jer Jerusalem being kind of the epicenter, the beginning of the faith, uh, uh, this, this Christ following faith. Uh, many of the believers had spent a significant amount of time there. Uh, they didn't have jobs. They didn't want to leave this area because they were being taught. They were being built up in their faith. Um, and so there became this, this need for everybody to try and uh, pull resources so that they could support these believers. There was also intense persecution that was happening. Uh, so that also created um, quite a, a lot of need. And so um, that is something that is described. It did happen in Jerusalem, but I'm not seeing it as something that is prescribed throughout the New Testament. And, well, let me ask you this. Do you see it in any of the other uh, uh, cities that the gospel spread to? No. In fact, what, you, what we know is that the early church, they met... Uh, kind of in hiding uh, because of the persecution, and that took the form of house churches mostly, or uh, in some cases in the, the Roman catacombs. We know that there were secret meetings and things, and that may have been a little bit later on. But um, during this time, as the gospel spread, you know, we have the letters from Paul, like, say, to Ephesus or Corinth, um, Galatia. And we sometimes think of that as like, well, there was like one church in each of those areas, uh, but they were all part of the same story in those days. You know, they, they didn't have the problem we have with like the denominations and uh, all of these different things. And so, you know, Paul would have the same authority as an apostle, no matter where he was writing to, where he went. Uh, he would be able to speak into those settings. And so you would have several different house churches within Ephesus or within Galatia. And you don't have this, this issue. You know, Paul wasn't thinking in terms of like, well, I can only plant churches in Rome and in, let's say, Jerusalem and, you know, like these strategic location type of things. Uh, so none of that, the way that the 12 tribes make it sound, none of that was the case in the early church. <laughs> so, so really, the only place that we see a situation in the Bible where all the believers, uh, and not even all of them actually, but uh, a lot of believers sold what they had and gave it to the rest of the brethren. Uh, one, they never gave it to any movement called the 12 tribes. Two, the only place it happened was in the book of Acts in Jerusalem. So uh, everywhere else, all these other uh, cities that uh, Paul was writing to, these different places where he planted churches, uh, 
all throughout the book of Acts, except for, again, Jerusalem, they met in house churches, as in it was owned by one of the believers. Um, in fact, uh, Philemon, he uh, ran a church out of his house. Um, I guess, furthermore, Jesus never rebuked any of his friends for owning property, um, nor did he command. There are no commands from Jesus to sell all that you own, uh, businesses, anything like that, um, and, and give it to the rest of the brethren. There was that one scripture, though, about the rich young ruler. Let's talk about that real quick. Um, is that a, a good proof text that we should also <laughs> go thou and do likewise, you know, or, or is there something more that Jesus is trying to, te- uh, trying to teach there? Well, you know, if you wanted a shortcut answer, you would ask the question when Jesus turns at the Last Supper to Judas and, you know, what you're going to do, go do quickly. Um, and then, you know, you could turn over and read that, you know, and Judas went and hung himself. Uh, I, I don't think <laughs> I don't uh, I don't think that uh, every conversation that we have in Scripture is meant to tell us what we specifically are supposed to do. And you mentioned the, the difference earlier when some texts are descriptive, meaning this is what happened, and I'm telling you what happened. And then there's others that are prescriptive, meaning I'm telling you this is the way it's going to be, and it doesn't matter when that is or where it is, this is the way it's going to be. And reading the book of Acts, it's really tempting uh, to – Think about, uh, well, this is the way that it is supposed to be, and we want to get back to the early church, and I don't think they had a way this is the po- way it's supposed to be. I think they were, sp- they were trying to figure it out as they went along. But, you know, in Jesus, when he talks to individuals, be it the Samaritan woman, be it the, um, the wealthy, you know, ruler guy um, whose son was sick or his servant was sick uh, or – Anybody, uh, what I found in I've been preaching through the Gospels all for uh, for the last two years is I have been amazed how specific and personalized every interaction of Jesus has been. And this is no different. Uh, What you have here is Jesus talking to a man who comes to him and he's kind of trying to check him out. He's actually trying to justify himself, really. If you read it, you know, hey, what good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus throws out, well, you know, you have the law and he lists some of them and he says, well, you know, these things I've done since I was young, which, you know, lie. (laughs) Um, No, (laughs) that's not the right answer. And uh, what I have found another thing in teaching through the Gospels is that when Jesus brings up the law, his intention is that we would tap out, you know, like say, mm-hmm. I can't do that. In which case, then he opens us arms and he says, okay, then come to me uh, and, you know, follow me. And that's what he was trying to do with this guy. He could tell, you know, Jesus was able to know a person's heart just, you know, in interacting with them. And he saw this guy's heart that he was trying to justify himself. He was, he was filled with pride. And so he tries to, you know, lay out the law, which is supposed to demolish our pride. <laughs> and then the guy says, no, I've kept all those things. And so Jesus goes, okay, let's go to level two here. Um, why don't you sell everything you have and follow me? And he knew this guy had a lot. He knew this guy wasn't going to be able to do that. But instead of this guy, again, I think what Jesus was looking for was, I can't do that. I'm not able to do that, Jesus. And which Jesus would have said, good. Finally, you said it. (laughs) Now come and follow me. And uh, this guy doesn't do that. He just, he goes away sad. He is admitting to himself, I can't do that. But he never admits it to Jesus. And he turns around, he turns away and he goes away sad. And that was an individual encounter. Never do you hear those words come out of Jesus' mouth. Never do you hear them come out of the apostles' mouth. Never do you hear them again, ever in Scripture. 
So to say that that would be normative or prescriptive would be really, really stretching things. And it would be contradicting a whole lot of other clear passages. Right, right. That can't be stressed enough. I mean, the entire book of Galatians is dealing with the situation where these guys have come to town. They're referred to as the Judaizers. And they're teaching that all the Gentiles need to follow the law of Moses, uh, the Mosaic law, you know, the, all the all the commands that you find in the first five books of the Bible, mm-hmm. that all the Gentiles have to follow all of those laws, be circumcised, eat according to the dietary guidelines uh, prescribed in the Old Testament, all of this in order to be saved. And that whole book of Galatians is a refutation of that idea. And it is stressed that it is a free gift. It is something that Christ did on the cross. We have a sin debt and Christ paid it and he paid it in full. Uh, and by trusting in him, we're saved, not through any work that we can do. I guess it, it bears mentioning too, to sell all you have and give it away to the, the rest of the brethren. That would also be a work, right? I mean, that would be considered a work. Um, if you were to go to the book of Romans, again, the book of Romans is this amazing uh, exposition of what it looks like to be saved and walk a Christian life. And it is so thorough in showing what the Christian walk looks like. Again, nowhere in there does it say sell all that you have and give it to the rest of the brethren. So we only have this one situation, really. There's only one situation where Jesus tell somebody to do that and you can't base all of Christianity off of one particular conversation that again you're going to be hard pressed to say this is prescriptive to all believers you know Absolutely. what i'm saying Absolutely. i mean gosh even even the guy on the cross next to jesus that was going to see jesus in paradise today <laughs> he didn't get a chance to get down and sell all that he had and give it to the 12 tribes uh, he didn't even have a chance to get down and get baptized. You can have that one for free. Um, <laughs> it's it, it really it's it's um, taking something, one obscure passage, and making uh, making another gospel out of it. Like suddenly, all that we see in the New Testament, all of eternity hangs on this one thing. You better sell all you have and give it to the twelve tribes, or you're not going to make it to heaven. Now, I, I guess really quick, because uh, I'm sure there's going to be some of those who are part of this movement, at least I'm hoping so, who are listening to this, um, but they're probably screwing their seat saying, hey, wait a minute, um, we believe that uh, other believers are going to make it to heaven. They kind of have a different view of what heaven looks like, and it very much resembles uh, the three levels of heaven that you uh, see in Mormonism. Can you describe that real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they believe very much in like it, it almost parallels the, the three levels of heaven, but not quite. Uh, the lowest level would be probably the, the level that would be the most different um, because in LDS theology, they would say, still say that's a heaven, whereas uh, the 12 tribes would say, no, this group is going to hell. And that's called the unjust and filthy. And th- that's those who live even against their own conscience. And uh, so that would be very similar to LDS, you know, those who live without a law, um, they go to the celestial kingdom. And so the 12 tribes would say, uh, yeah, you, they're, they call them the unjust and filthy, and those are the guys who go to hell. But the other group, the other people who are in this group are those who have been uh, – they've had the gospel of the 12 tribes, in quotes um, – shared with them by a worthy member of the 12 tribes community and they reject it. Uh, they believe those people also go to hell. So I guess, I don't know if they would consider them handing me a tract at Anaheim stadium. Uh, me hearing the gospel. I mean, I technically read it when I, when I received it, but I don't know if I'm going to hell in their mind or not. Uh, that wasn't exactly clear from their, their website, but, um, 
The second level would be those who are kind of like you and me or people who believe or they're what we would say, quote unquote, good people. Uh, they live according to their conscience uh, and, you know, they try their best, but they just never have heard this gospel. Right. Well, those go to this uh, second level of heaven, which is they're going to heaven and they're going to be serving the category of, that's called the righteous, which is that highest level. And so um, that would be very similar, I guess you could say, to the terrestrial kingdom in Mormonism. And then the celestial kingdom in Mormonism would be the equivalent of the, the righteous category here in the 12 tribes. And that would be those who are uh, who have heard the, the, the 12 tribe gospel and they've moved to one of these communities and they live a life of sacrifice with their for the common good and they strive as a community to become more like Jesus and so those are the ones who are going to be ruling with Jesus in heaven. Hmm. <clears throat> now now this just occurred to me just now but um do you know when this movement came about? You know what? I, I may have said something about that in the book, but I don't know offhand. <laughs> well, I, I got to imagine it didn't come about until the last, at least last 100 years. I mean, I wouldn't make, I wouldn't, I, 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 I just can't guess that. that it was in the midst of the 60s and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, you know, interestingly enough, when I was uh, creating the cover for the book, I was looking up, you know, pictures of all these, uh, the founders of these groups. And uh, this guy's name is Gene Simmons. And I, when I found his picture, I was like, wow, how anybody could follow that guy. He's on the upper right corner uh, for those who might have the book. Um, and uh, he he's a gnarly looking guy. So I, I don't know how anybody could have followed him and like, hey, you want to come live with me? No, I'll pass. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's. It's like Mormonism, like Jehovah's Witnesses, we have a fairly new group. And again, it's like, are we really going to believe that God was so vague, he messed up his word so bad that for almost 2,000 years, nobody got it right. And it took somebody coming along much later, Gene Simmons, which isn't that also the name of the lead singer of... Kiss? I don't know. Maybe the guy's got a long tongue and he puts on makeup. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I digress. Anyway, are we really to believe that for a couple thousand years, God, I mean, he screwed up his word so bad that nobody was able to get it. And for several thousand years, everybody was going to either this second level of heaven or just straight up to hell just because... God was not able to make it explicit enough. This God that's outside of space and time, who sees the end from the beginning, was not able to make his word clear enough to where everybody would just get it. Absolutely. And I, that's almost like in the handbook uh, for cult leaders that you have to, step one, you have to lower the authority of the Bible um, or you have to create this sense that something needs to be restored. And they do that through either, you know, lowering the authority of the Bible or teaching this idea of an apostasy, that the, the true church of Jesus Christ has not existed for however many hundreds of years. And then this guy, you know, whether they have an angel appear to them or God himself appear to him, them or find some scriptures in the dirt or whatever it is, that they are the vehicle by which all this, you know, now we can finally live out what Jesus established and taught. And, you know, this group would be no different in that claim. And that just creates complete dependency of the group upon that leader. And then whoever takes over in their stead, you know, they're the ones who are able to interpret these, you know, rather vague um, passages of scripture and tell you how central and important and, uh, and what they really mean and all of those things. And so uh, that's that's kind of like cult leader 101 right there. Yeah, yeah. Going back to the rich young ruler and, and the passages that maybe support their position a little bit, or at least 
could be twisted to support their uh, position. One, we already looked at the this rich young ruler. Um, we also have a passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 25, that says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, that that scripture also, they use that as well, correct? Yeah, I, I would imagine they do. I, I haven't necessarily seen it on their website. Uh, I included it in the book in my section on how to use the Gospels and the teachings of Jesus to interact with these groups. Um, and I included that in reference to this group. Now, the interesting thing about that verse, and I'll just throw this in for your listeners so they don't keep passing this on, but somewhere along the line, in a commentary that was written, I, I, I don't know if it was a church father or the medieval period or somewhere, mm-hmm. somebody said that there was a camel's eye or a needle's eye gate in Jerusalem. And it, you, they would have to like scrunch their camel or their donkey, you know, down uh, through in order to get them through. So it wasn't impossible, but it was difficult. And I just need to tell your listeners that gate never existed, that was completely made up, and yet, you know, countless pastors are just continue to pass it on uh, throughout time because they don't, you know, check their sources. Um, and so Jesus, the whole point, you know, the apostles, they turn to him and say, well, it's impossible then for anybody. Who can, then, who can be saved? And he says, "With men, it is impossible. With uh, with God, it is. It, it, with God, everything is possible." And See, there you go. That was the point. That that regeneration, eternal life, new you know being reborn, is a miracle. Every time it happens, it is a miracle. And so, whether you're talking about a rich person, a poor person, you know, upper class, lower class. You know, what kind of, you know, race, culture, background, it doesn't matter. It's a miracle every single time it happens. Well, you know, certainly when a person has a lot of wealth um, and they trust in their own skills, they trust in their own um, ability to make money, they trust in their own uh, abilities to uh, sustain themselves, sustain their family, uh, to make their life comfortable. And then, of course, they're surrounded by comforts. Um, they're far less likely to humble themselves mm-hmm. and, and, and want to trust in Christ. It's, it's often those who are in desperate need who also are much more susceptible to trusting in God. Um, <laughs> I remember at one point being on an airplane and uh, um, we, we experienced some really vicious um, turbulence and wind was blowing so hard that when we were coming in for landing in uh, Panama, the the plane almost went 90 degrees from the runway just right before touching down. It was terrifying. And before I realized I was doing it, I screamed out, Jesus, save us. And you would not believe how many amens I got (laughs) throughout the plane, you know? And of course, immediately the plane straightened out and we landed perfectly. Um, but, uh, I, I guess my point in saying that is when a person is in desperate need, they're far more likely to call upon the name of the Lord than when they're all full of themselves and trusting in their own abilities. So, uh, and I think that's what's being talked about there in Mark. It's, it, you know, when people are trusting in themselves, they're not likely to call on the name of the Lord. Is it impossible? It kind of is, but with God, all things are possible. And so uh, we have examples of wealthy people in the Bible who trusted in God. Um, Of course, we have uh, in the Old Testament, we have David, we have um, uh, Solomon for a time. We're not really sure about his end, but uh, Solomon, uh, there were many kings that trusted in the Lord that were fairly wealthy. Uh, And then you go on to the New Testament and you find lots of different people that uh, uh, had Slaves, okay. In fact, there's a scripture in Colossians that addresses, oh, where is it? That's that's addressing uh, slave owners, okay? A slave owner is somebody that's got some land, they've got some wealth, right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? And we're talking about, you know, 
the, the slave owner is being addressed by Paul. And Paul basically says, you know, treat your slaves with um, uh, justly and fairly, considering that you too have a master in heaven. The fact that this slave owner has a master in heaven suggests very strongly that he is trusting in Christ, <laughs> right? And the fact that he has slaves definitely beyond a shadow of a doubt proves that he has wealth. Okay. That, that would have been a perfect time for Paul to say, uh, hey, and masters, set your your slaves free, sell everything you have, give it to the 12 tribes, you know, but it's never said. It's never explicitly said, which means what we have here is another gospel. And in, in the very beginning of Galatians, I think it's verses six through nine of chapter one, Paul talks about, you know, if we or even an angel preach another gospel than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. I mean, that's terrifying. And what we're seeing here is another gospel. Absolutely. Absolutely, it's another gospel. And, you know, I just want to throw in here in this conversation, uh, one of the things that is also, it kind of in certain Christian circles, it's a problem. Uh, but the idea that the 12 tribes is somehow not applying to Israel anymore it is uh, it's out there not just in the 12 tribes group, but it's out there in a lot of different circles. Um, but, you know, when I read Revelation 7, uh, that seems pretty specific. You know, 12,000 mm -hmm. from each tribe, you know, free, you know, a little Jehovah's Witness tip right there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Paul, he knew he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And you have others uh, who name you know, their, their tribe. And so I, you know, I know the records, you know, were all destroyed in the temple in 1870 and all that kind of stuff, but that, you know, the idea that the church has become Israel, and I know we don't want to go down this rabbit trail too long, but, uh, that that's not a biblical concept. So, uh, that's part of what's going on here when they believe the 12 tribes are the body of Christ um, you know, it reminds me of the passage in Revelation where Jesus says to uh, the church in Philadelphia, you know, he refers to those who say they are Jews and are not. And I, I do believe that that's an issue. It's been an issue throughout Christian history for a long time. Uh, this idea that, that, that Israel is, you know, out and there is no 12 tribes. Um, and then you can go the other route where people are like, uh, you know, the British, you know, people are really like Israelites down the road or something or, you know, like the Book of Mormon people are, you know, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's down the road. And so you, you can go both ways. But, you know, both of those, I think, are false. Uh, I think when it says Israel, it means Israel and uh, the 12 tribes specifically when those are named. It's it's pretty specific. Right. That is very true. Yeah, I believe it's uh, replacement theology. In fact, uh, I think even John Hagee teaches that. So they, they have another belief that is somewhat odd. Uh, they believe that Jesus actually suffered and paid for our sins in hell. Um, what's up with that? Yeah, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting because ultimately when it comes down to it, I, I don't really know what role Jesus actually plays in the whole salvation part of this. Because, I mean, I know they say that you need to be baptized by a worthy member of their community and calling on the name of Jesus, who they would say they would call him Yeshua. Uh, the he whole Hebrew theme, you might as well run with that, right? Um, but... Uh, I forgot what I was saying, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> what were we uh, talking about again? <laughs> talking, talking about Jesus uh, having to suffer in hell oh, yes. in order to pay for our sins. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, but that is a common thing that uh, these groups uh, will minimize the role of Jesus to the point where you kind of even wonder, like, 
why do why does he have to be involved for me to be saved in the first place? But uh, with Jesus, they believe that after the cross, that he went to hell, literally to hell, and suffered for those three days, and that he cried out, and the Father heard his cry, and then he returned, he, he reunited his body and his spirit, um, and you know resurrected him, and it was during the, it was that whole of the three days, him suffering in hell that actually paid for our sins. So... You know, that that's very different from, you know, it is finished, which Jesus said from the cross before he gave up the spirit, uh, meaning paid in full to tell us die. It was not guilty. Your, your debt is paid. It's completely paid. Uh, so that that is very, very different than than what we believe as Christians. Right. And, and I've seen that same or, or at least variations of that idea um, come from even, uh, I, I don't want to say Orthodox Christianity, but many other Christians. Um, I think Joyce Meyer makes a claim like that, that you can't be saved unless you believe. Uh, at least I have, a, I have a quote somewhere in my archives of her saying something to the effect of, uh, you can't be saved unless you believe that Jesus also paid and suffered for you in hell. Um, I believe uh, uh, some some people within the hyper charismatic movement make similar claims like that as well. And, uh, yeah, and so, I, I just yeah. want to stay on that note um, because they, there is either Jesus is suffering in hell with some groups, or he's like brandishing a sword and taking on demons, and you know. <laughs> Uh, and they call that actually the Christus Victor view. It goes all the way back to uh, pretty early on. Um, and But both of those are, are wrong. When, when it talks about – and I, I say this for the benefit, of, again, of some of your listeners because you take the Apostles' Creed, for example. And the Apostles' Creed has a line in it that he descended into hell. Well, that's the English rendering of the Apostles' Creed. And so because it says he descended into hell, some believers won't say it or they'll skip that line because of what we're talking about. And they think that's what it's saying, but that's not what it's saying. Uh, in the Greek, which is what it would originally have been in, it was he descended in Hades, which is the realm of the dead. In Hebrew, it would have been Sheol. Uh, that is the general place, destination that all people before Christ went and they were awaiting the Messiah. So some were awaiting in comfort and they were awaiting for Jesus to die for their sins and, and rise from the dead and then set them free, open heaven. Some were um, there. They were in place of torment and they were awaiting their formal sentencing. And I believe they still are waiting there for their formal sentencing. And it says that Jesus went and he released the captives, those who were waiting for his uh, his coming. And then it also refers to him going to Tartarus um, that, or the, to the spirits in prison. And he was proclaiming his victory, I believe, is what it says. Um and so you have him disarming, you know, in Colossians, it talks about disarming the, the rulers and principal authorities, but he's not doing that by like fighting them. He, he's doing that because he won. He, his authority is clear. He's God. He's the creator of all of these beings. And then he, he died on a cross as the ultimate victory over sin, death, hell, all of it. So, I, you know, he's going there to say it's over. I won, you know, so yeah. that, that's what's going on here. And so I wanted to set your listeners free. You can say the Apostles Creed in whole. That's not what it's saying. You know, it's teaching something very biblical, in fact. Right, right. <clears throat> you know, and, and the Bible's so clear that what Christ did to pay for our sins, it was done on the cross. It yes. wasn't done in the Garden of Gethsemane with him sweating drops of blood, and it wasn't done in hell either. Uh, Colossians 2.14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements. Okay, uh, some translations will render that certificate of debt, and that's basically what it means, um, our sin. So wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, 
which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having what? Paid for it in hell? No, that's not what it says. Having nailed it to the cross, you know. And uh, what you said earlier that needs to be stressed, when Christ was on the cross, he called out, paid in, I'm sorry, it is finished. And the Greek word there for it is finished is actually to telestai, which is, uh, it basically means paid in full. They would take that, that Greek word, they would stamp it on documents when either somebody had paid off a debt or they had completed their prison sentence. <laughs> paid in full, boom, stamped. Okay. Jesus said that on the cross before he supposedly went to hell. Okay. So it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. So um, another, uh, I guess, differentiating, differentiating, that's easy for me to say, uh, doctrine that they have uh, as far as eschatology is concerned is uh, Christ's return. Uh, what do they believe about Christ's return? Well, they don't believe he's going to return until uh, the communities basically get their act together. Um, and many of the 12 tribe communities uh, that are around the world, uh, they believe that they are becoming more like Jesus as they live a life of sacrifice together. That's kind of why they do it um, in their minds anyway. And so they believe that when they have successfully been in unity and become like Jesus, then Jesus will come back, set up his kingdom, uh, and the millennium will start, in which case then, you know, they they will become like the ruling class. Uh, and, you know, whereas those who were, you know, good, you know, become the serving class and, you know, then the unjust and filthy are done away with. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, the new apostolic reformations, uh, fairly popular belief of dominionism yeah. <laughs> that um, that basically that we're we're as Christians supposed to subdue the earth uh, via conquering seven uh, major areas of society. Uh, they call it the seven mountain mandate that you're supposed to. Um, conquer these seven major areas like arts, media, education, family, government, and I'm probably missing one or two, um, but conquering these major areas so that Christ can return and we basically offer him the earth that we've already conquered, which is not anywhere in the book of Revelation. There is nothing about that at all. It's, but you uh, can see it in theaters now. Uh, Marvel Infinity War. <laughs> right. Oh, yep. Except uh, he had six Infinity Stones. Or no, five. Five. He had... F what? No. It is six. <laughs> it's six Infinity Stones, right? Five fingers, and then he had one on the back of his hand. That's right. Um, yeah. What the movie didn't seem to mention was that there is actually a seventh stone called the Chaos Stone. But uh, we'll just – you guys can also have that one for free. It, <laughs> Chaos Stone had more of like a rainbow color thing going on. Um, anyway, that, well, that's in regards to the 12 tribes, it's interesting because it is post-millennial in thought – because it's about the church, you know, becoming something before Jesus can come back. But at the same time, they still acknowledge like the, the world is going to become worse and worse. And that's why they separate themselves from the world. So it's this weird mixture of like dispensationalism and postmillennialism. Because they're trying to purify themselves and, and and get the kingdom ready for Jesus to take over, but still the the world's getting worse and worse. Huh. So, that I you know I guess that kind of wraps it up. I mean we that's basically the uh, twelve or, uh, tribes movement in a nutshell, and um, I guess really the the, the most grievous grievous um, teaching that they have is that <clears throat> you have to sell everything you own 
and uh, give it to them in order to really uh, be considered righteous and go to the highest level of heaven. Gosh, even uh, Jesus himself was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It was a wealthy tomb. He was buried in a wealthy tomb by what? A follower of Jesus, a believer. Um, And anyway, (laughs) it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. So your book, Jason, Sharing Jesus with the Cults, where can everybody get this book? The primary place where you can get it is Amazon. It's uh, published through Amazon, and so it's available as paperback or Kindle. And if you get the bundle, you mean if you get both, then you get the the Kindle version for I think two ninety nine. And it's also available on the Kindle Unlimited. So if you have that, um, you know I just get credit for the pages you read. So go ahead and just flip through those pages real quick. <laughs> and. Uh, then, uh, but it is also available in other places, uh, you know, mostly online and uh, like Barnes and Noble and those kind of places. But Amazon is the, the the primary source that would help me out. And if you do purchase it on Amazon, go ahead and leave a review. Um, it's in its early stages, and for a lot of people, that just that credibility. If they see my name and go, who? And then uh, if they read your review and they might give it a second glance. And so I appreciate that. Um, that's kind of level one is just purchasing the book level two. Uh, and you know, along with level one, I have a YouTube channel, people, the free gift and a Facebook page, uh, people, the free gift. And, you know, I'm working through teaching through the book on those. And so go ahead and subscribe engage, ask your questions, all of that. But level two, I'm offering the opportunity for churches or small groups to do a Bible study based off of the book. And it's just really simple. All you do is get in touch with me and gather the questions from the group um, of what they would like to know, their questions about Colts or from the book, and get those to me, the time frame that you're thinking, and uh, along with the book order and whatever donation you want to include. And then I will make videos that are custom to your questions and the material related to that and also discussion questions for you guys. to. to and then I will be available as a resource. And um, so that would be like level two. Level three, if you uh, wanted to have me speak to your group, you know, and that could be either live or, you know, via online. I just ask for reimbursement of travel expenses and the ability to set up a book table and just make it simple. And so any of those things, if you're interested or you just have questions, get in touch with me. I'm glad to help. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jason. Once again, it is. it has been a pleasure having you on. Absolutely, Michael. It's a blast every time we get together. Great. Thanks, Jason. Okay, that wraps it up. Again, that was Pastor Jason Oaks. The book, Sharing Jesus with the Cults. Uh, certainly it is available on Amazon. If you get it and you like it, please leave them a good review. That always helps uh, immensely to get this message out. And so with that, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, (laughs) This is my first podcast getting back to uh, my passion, which is talking about worldviews and apologetics in a long time. Uh, and I'm really excited about the uh, the things that are ahead. It's it's a, it's a very exciting times for me. As you guys know, uh, I am uh, co-pastoring a church, Calvary Chapel Berthoud. Okay, I am one of two pastors, and we're kind of bouncing back and forth, uh, which is I think a really good thing. If I was to jump straight into a pastoral role, I think that there might be some gaps of. Uh, <laughs> let's just say wisdom and understanding as far as what it would really take to run a church. And and I think that um, it could be a, a travesty. So I'm really glad to be teaming up with uh, another pastor, Pastor Russ Mao, uh, awesome guy. Anyway, it's been really awesome. And now I am able to uh, hold to, at the very least, one podcast a week. Uh, Again, I'm really hoping to crank out uh, two a week as things settle down. There's just a lot going on still. The dust is still settling in in so many areas. Uh, But the intent is to get back to uh, two a week, hopefully, 
And uh, I'm hoping that one of them will be a through the Bible, cover to cover, expositional type teaching, and then the other would be more worldview apologetics. Hey, that, that would be a good balance, I think. So anyway, with that, we'll stop right here. I love you guys, and we'll see you next week. Yes.